You're listening to sermon audio from Providence Baptist Church. Be sure to check out pbcfrankfort.org for more information. If you have a Bible, if you would turn to Joshua chapter 5, Joshua chapter 5, and we are returning to our stories series today, uh, and we're going to look a little bit at the story of Joshua out of chapter 5. Some of you maybe are familiar with Joshua and the story that he has, and some of you may not be, so I want to take a few moments to do two things. To to one, talk about Joshua's impressive uh, resume that he has leading up to the time that he leads Israel, Uh, and then we're going to talk about a synopsis of Joshua, the book, uh, from chapters 1 through where we're going to be looking at today, which is going to start uh, in verse 13. Uh, His resume is this, and this is a, a synopsis here, but... Exodus 17, Joshua was chosen by Moses to go and to select men who would go and carry out the fight that they needed to fight. In Exodus 24, we're told that he accompanied Moses upon Mount Sinai when Mount Sinai was going to meet the Lord. In Numbers 13, he's sent as one of the spies into the land of Canaan. And in Numbers 14, when he and Caleb come back and the people begin to, uh, to, to wonder and worry and to really not believe in the promise and the trust of God, Joshua and Caleb encourage the people. Let them know, remind them of who God is in their life and of his faithfulness. And then throughout the entire book of Deuteronomy in various places, Joshua is appointed the leader Uh, for the people of Israel into the promised land. And so the book of Joshua tells that story. It tells the, the, the transfer of power, if you will, from Moses to Joshua and Joshua beginning to lead Israel. And so uh, I would encourage you this week to read through uh, Joshua, at least the, the first part of it to, as we're going to be kind of referencing that today. But just to give you an understanding of where we are and how we get to chapter 5, In chapter 1, God himself commissions Joshua as leader of the people of Israel. In chapter 2, spies are sent again into the land to to go before the people of Israel to make a a plan and a survey, and uh, Rahab hides those spies in her home. In chapter 3, Israel crosses the Jordan River over into the promised land. Just a side note, they promise, or they, they cross over dry land as the waters of the Jordan are peeled back in a way that God mimics what they had done as they had exited uh, Egypt through the Red Sea. In chapter 4, as a result of that, they set what are called memorial stones to stand and to tell the story of what God had done and who God was. And then in chapter 5, in the beginning stages, there's a circumcision that occurs of all the men who had been uncircumcised at that point as a covenant sign with God, and they observe their first Passover in the promised land. And so as we get into Joshua 5, what we find is that they are getting ready for their first battle in a series of battle or conquests for the promised land. And that's where we'll pick up today, Joshua 5, verses 13 through 15, if you want to follow along with me. It says, when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, no, but I am the commander of the Lord, of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. 
And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. So in verse 13, what we're told essentially is that Joshua is preparing for this first battle that is set before them, the conquest of Jericho, uh, as they enter into the promised land. Why was he by Jericho or near Jericho? The Bible doesn't explicitly tell us, but most people believe, and it seems plausible, that as the leader of this, this new nation, as the leader of God's people, he was next to Jericho or, or on the surrounding edges of Jericho surveying the city, surveying its defenses, developing a strategy, and apparently praying. The scripture says that he lifts his eyes up and sees this man that we'll talk about in just a moment. So it's doubtful that Joshua, having had all the preparation that he's had after uh, being Moses, really his right-hand man, after seeing all these things that God had done and commanded and worked through Moses, it's doubtful that Joshua takes this command lightly. He's, he's bearing the weight of it. He's bearing the responsibility of it. He's bearing the, the fullness of what it means to lead God's people. And so he goes to Jericho and he begins to look over and pray. I want to ask as a side moment for us, how are you preparing for battles that are to come? How do, how do we prepare? If we wait till we're in the battle, it's typically too late. So you and I must be preparing for battles that are coming our way. And one thing I want us to see here with Joshua doing this is Joshua is not passive in preparing for the battle, even though the battle is the Lord's. He's active. Reading from Joshua 1, verses 5 and 9, as, as God commissions Joshua, God says these words. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. And then in verse 9, have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. It would have been very easy for Joshua or for any of us to have had those words given to us by God himself to say, oh, I've got a battle coming up. Well, I'll just, to use a popular phrase, let go and let God. But he doesn't do that. He goes and surveys, he looks, he watches over, and most of all, he prays. And that understanding that the Lord would fight for him was one that had been passed down throughout the time leading up to that. Exodus 14, 14, the Lord will fight for you. You only have to be silent. Deuteronomy 1, verse 30, the Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. Deuteronomy 20, verses 3 and 4, Hear, O Israel, today you're drawing near for battle against your enemies. Let not your heart faint. Do not let fear or panic or, or be in dread of them. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you the victory. With all of these promises, and that's just a, just a smattering of what God has said in the times leading up to Jericho. It would have been real easy for Joshua just to kind of kick back and go, okay, it's all right. The Lord's got this. But understand, the truth that the Lord has this never equates to us being passive and kicked back. The truth that the Lord has this, whatever the this is in our lives, equates to trusting that he's fighting for us, trusting that he knows the outcome of the battle far before we do, trusting that even if the outcome of the battle is not great, he has a bigger purpose, 
and understanding that we are called to an active sense in our response and in our lives. Now, there is a New Testament shift that I have to speak of here for just a moment. Because here we have Joshua leading a people, leading a nation. Uh, Throughout the Old Testament, we see that repeatedly, not only with Joshua, but with others, of God's people, this nation of people being brought up and commanded to fight and go into battle. But there's a shift that occurs in the New Testament. And that shift is this. No longer is God calling a people a nation over other nations. Now he's calling his church. Now he's calling all. The book of Revelation tells us that we'll see it culminated in every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And he's calling them to fight. So what we want to learn from Joshua is how do we fight? Well, we couple the fact that he surveyed. We couple the fact that he went and overlooked the city and and made a plan and that he was praying. And we tie that into places like Ephesians 6 where Paul writes this beginning verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Jesus' own words in John 18, as he is before Pilate, beginning verse 33, Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus to him. And said, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and your chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answers, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I would not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. Though we learn from Joshua and though we learn from his being prepared and overlooking the city and formulating a plan and, yes, praying, what we learn then is as we shift into the New Testament and the, the covenant that we now have in Jesus is that our enemy is no longer flesh and blood. Our enemy is not any more a human being that we are to conquer in our earthly kingdom. For Jesus says his kingdom is not of this earth. If it were, they would have already been fighting. We'll look even at a spiritual understanding of that in just a moment. So I want us to to grasp from this today that even though we draw uh, uh, power and even though we draw uh, uh, a certain comfort and strength from what Joshua does and how God responds in the battle, understand our battle is very different. Our battle is very different because of who Jesus is, what he has done, and who we are in him. So point two today then would be this. Joshua's there by Jericho, and he's, he's making plans, and he asks the question, but he asks the wrong question. Look again at what he says there at the end of verse 13. He sees this man standing before him with his drawn sword and says to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? Are you for us or are you for our enemies? Are you for us or are you for them? Now, it's the wrong question. It's a natural question. Because of a couple of things. Number one, as leader of the army, Joshua had not given the make ready command. So he lifts his eyes up, presumably from prayer, and sees a man with a sword in front of him. He's not given any of his soldiers the okay to go ahead and get armed and ready for battle. So if it's one of his own, he needs to know that. Secondly, a man with a drawn sword, 
is a man ready to use that sword? And so again, Joshua needs to ask this question of who he is and who he's for because the, the, the scenario that he's seeing is here's a person who's ready to do battle. It's the equivalent of what we might call, are you friend or foe? When I'm working downstairs in, in my office, and uh, typically I'm the only one here, but sometimes, you know, there's about 18 million keys to this church, I think. And so uh, I, I hear a door open, and I hear somebody start coming down that bottom hallway, and oftentimes I'll say, friend or foe, hoping that somebody will respond. Because <laughs> if they don't respond at all, I think I've got my answer. That's the equivalent of what Joshua is doing here. Are you for us or are you for them? But it's the wrong question, even though it's the natural question. Why is it the wrong question? Because Joshua doesn't know who he's addressing. You and I have the ability to see this story in hindsight. He did not have that ability. He did not have that in his life. In the Old Testament, there are two uh, teachings or two ideas. One is called a theophany. It is when God makes himself visible or manifest or he makes an appearance in the Old Testament. And so uh, sometimes we see it in things like this, the pillar of fire or the pillar of smoke or the cloud of smoke around Mount Sinai or a pillar of cloud or dust. It's God making himself visible in some sort of a manifestation to people. It's called a theophany. But in the Old Testament, there also are these examples of what are called a Christophany. And that is, there are examples of Jesus before he was Jesus. Now, I know, you got to let your mind wrap around that one for just a moment. But it's examples of Jesus being on the earth before he was incarnate in the sense that he was that we learn about in the New Testament. In Genesis 18, the visitors to Abram under the oaks of Mamre believed to be that person which was the pre-incarnate Christ. In Genesis 32, when he wrestles with Jacob, it is believed to be the incarnate or the pre-incarnate Jesus. In Daniel 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrown into the fire. And they look in, they say, didn't we throw three people in there? Say, yeah, but there's a fourth one. And he has an appearance like a son of the gods the pre-incarnate Christ. Jesus even affirms this in the Gospels. In John chapter 8, beginning verse 54, the, the Jews are highlighting and, and attacking him, and he says this, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you've not known him. I know him. If I were to say I do not know him, I would be a liar like you, but I know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. The Jews said, you're not 50 years old and you've seen Abraham. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. There are other places in both the Old and the New Testament that we get this understanding that there was a time where Jesus, before he was Jesus, entered into the creation that he created. And he did so here with this moment as Joshua to describe himself in a very particular way. Look again at how he answers in verse 14. He says, no, I'm going to come back to that in just a moment. He says, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I've come. We have other places in the scriptures where Jesus, seen as a commander of an army, exists. Matthew 26, 53. 
He says, do you not think I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send, more than, send to me more than 12 legions of angels ready to do battle? Paul picks up on it in his, in his writing to Timothy, 2 Timothy 2, 3 and 4. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets uh, entangled in civilian pursuits, but his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Revelation 19, probably the greatest one that we see in the scripture, beginning of verse 11 in John's vision. I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse, and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, on his head are many crowns, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he's called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which he will strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus, pre-incarnate is standing before Joshua, ready to lead Israel into the battle. Joshua is the leader, but Joshua is really the under leader. Jesus is leading them into this battle. Jesus is the one who's doing this work. It's confirmed in the later scripture there in verse 15 when he talks about the fact that Joshua falls down and worships him. And the, the, the man standing before him that we believe to, be, believe to be Jesus says, take off your sandals. This is holy ground, mimicking the interaction that Moses had with God the Father at the bush. Some say, isn't this just an angel? Well, Perhaps, and there are places in the Old Testament that we believe are places where Jesus showed up and it's called the angel of the Lord. But understand this, the Bible expressly condemns angel worship. So Joshua could not be falling and worshiping at the foot of an angel. John tried that in Revelation and the angel said, get up. You don't worship me. Secondly, some then say, well, isn't this just a manifestation of God? In Exodus 33, verse 20, God said these words, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. John picks up on that in his gospel in the New Testament. John 1, verse 18, No one's ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. See, the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit have always been. That Jesus entered into our history at a certain point of time recorded is true, but he has always been. Paul says in Colossians, by him all things were created. And so this man that Joshua sees is, we believe, to be the pre-incarnate Christ, the commander of the Lord's armies, the commander who one day will lead the Lord's armies into the final battle decisive for this world. But I want to end today by going back to that response there in verse 14. Let's look at the question again at the end of verse 13. Are you for us or for our adversaries? Are you for us or are you for them? And he said, no. Before he gets to, I'm the commander of the army of the Lord, he says, no. 
or depending on your translation, nay, or depending on your translation, neither, or neither, depending on how you want to say it. They all mean the same thing. It is Jesus saying to Joshua, I'm not on either of your sides. I'm on God's. I'm not here for you. I'm not here for them. I'm here for him. We spend so much time trying to figure out if God is on our side. And that is something that has been done throughout the fullness of human history. In the early 4th century, a man named Constantine saw a vision of a cross in the sky and believed he saw these words, in this sign you will conquer. And so he had the sign of the cross imprinted upon his, sh his soldiers' shields and their flags and battle standards that they would carry, uh, large poles that they would carry into battle before them were made in the shape of the cross. And after defeating his enemy, he became the emperor of all Roman territory that eventually led to Christianity being adopted as the official religion of all who lived in Rome. You might be saying, well, yeah, but he saw, he saw a vision. He He did. He was the only one that saw it, which means we've got to be careful. If I stand up to you the next time I stand before you on a Sunday morning and say, I've had a vision, God's told me we need to sell all this property and we need to go do something completely different as a church and just meet in homes and give all of our money away. And nobody else has that vision but me. How many of y'all on board? Constantine says he had a vision that proved that God was on his side. Several centuries later, the first Christian crusades against both Muslims and even other Christians with whom they could not theologically agree with began. And it was accompanied by cries of God wills it. It was accompanied by cries and declarations of Pope Urban II who said, quote, Christ commands it. And understand that when he made that statement, he promised the forgiveness of sin for any who fought in those crusades because, quote, God was on their side. Last time I checked, forgiveness of sin comes through trusting in Jesus Christ. In the years leading up to the Civil War, both North and South in our country thought God was on their side. The North and their faith leaders believed it was God's will to end oppressive slavery. The South and their faith leaders believed the Bible not only allowed for slavery, but commanded it, quote, since Jesus did not speak directly against it, end quote. I can give you a whole list of things Jesus did not speak directly against that we would say are not good. In our modern age, Adolf Hitler commonly referred to God or some other reference of God as being a source of power and strength. From a 1936 speech he gave, he said this, I believe today I am acting in the sense of the almighty creator. By warding off the Jews, I am fighting for the Lord's work. It's important to note that not only did Hitler make such statements, but because he made such statements, churches in Germany, Christian churches, began to pick that idea up as well. A pastor named Hermann Gruner said this in a sermon, The time is fulfilled for the German people of Hitler. It's because of Hitler that Christ, God, the Helper and Redeemer, has become effective among us. Hitler is the way of the Spirit and the will of God for the German people to enter into the Church of Christ. Even in our, in our current situation in Ukraine, 
The president of Russia, President Putin, has made a religious connection to his conquest of the Ukraine. And there have been images of priests within the Russian Orthodox Christian Church who are blessing tanks and soldiers and other weapons of warfare as they leave Moscow because they believe God is on their side. Understand this, if you're going to claim God is on your side, you had better be certain. Because what the scripture actually leads us to understand, the sum of the totality of scripture is this, God is on God's side. God is about his purpose and his kingdom and his direction and his will and what he wants to see accomplished through the end of all time. Some of you may say, well, yeah, but aren't there scriptures that say God is for us? Of course there are. Romans 8, 31, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Of course he's on our side. Of course he's for us. But understand, he is for us in the sense that we are for him. If you read further in Joshua this week, if you take up your your Bible and read the story of Joshua a little further, what you'll see is that they have a great victory here at Jericho. And then in Joshua chapter 7, they're defeated by a much smaller army in the city of Ai, Because in the defeat of Jericho, men of Israel took the things that God had told them not to take. They stole what they should not have stolen. And so in that moment, in that next battle, God was not on their side. Why? Because they had had shown that they were not on his God sets his love and his choice on Israel and the Bible not because they were the greatest, not because they were the most powerful, not because they were the strongest, but precisely because they were the opposite. He set his love and choice on them so his glory, not theirs, would come to pass. And throughout the Old Testament, what we read of God is that he does what he does for the sake of his glory and the sake of his name. Let me read you three examples today. In Isaiah 48, as Isaiah 48 is talking about Israel being refined and eventually restored for his glory, he says this in verses 9 through 11. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I've refined you, but not as silver. I've tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. How should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. In Ezekiel chapter 36, Ezekiel 36 is the the saying where he talks about giving us a new heart and and removing the heart of stone and giving us a heart of flesh and walking in his ways. But this is what he says beginning in verse 20. When they came to the nations, meaning Israel, when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name. And the people said of them, these are the people of the Lord, and yet they had to be removed from his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which Israel profaned among the nations. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord, listen to this, catch this, it is not for your sake, Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you profaned among the nations. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which you have profaned, and the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God. 
in Daniel chapter 9, verses 16 through 20, Daniel's praying for his people. And he says this as one last example. O Lord, according to your righteous acts, let your anger and wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because our sins and the iniquities of our fathers. Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. And therefore, God, listen to the prayer of your servant and his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. Incline your ear and hear, open your eyes and see in the city that is called by your name. We do not present our pleas because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, my God, for your city and your people are called by your name. God is on God's side. God is about his glory. God is about his purpose and his kingdom. And he is for us so long as we are for him. And Christ ushers in a new directive. He ushers in a new way to become gods. No longer is it now through being born into a nation, but being born again into the precious blood of Jesus Christ. But understand, that does not then mean that we can, as we mentioned earlier, just sit back. God's got this. We are called to action in his kingdom. We are called to be for him. He does what he does for his glory and for his name's sake. Not mine, not yours, not any other nation, not any other people group. He does what he does for his name's sake and his glory. Do you and I benefit from that? Yes. Praise Jesus we do. But understand he does what he does for him. Now, if a normal human being were to take that approach, we would call him pompous, arrogant, and all sorts of other things. But it is not pompous, and it is not arrogant, and it is not prideful for God to say, I am about my glory and no other. It is not pompous and arrogant and prideful for God to say, for my name's sake, that it would be lifted up. No, for he is who he is, and he acts on his behalf. We pray and we plead and we act as Joshua did, as Daniel did, as Ezekiel did, but we need to make sure we're asking the right question when we do so. We do not ask the question, God, are you for us or them? God asks us, are you for me? Maybe said individually and collectively that we will take up that cross and follow him. Thanks for listening. If you have any thoughts, questions, or prayer concerns, please email us at pbcfrankfurt at gmail.com.